What leads you to decide to become a chef? I track it, I track it back to uh, Saturday mornings. You know, we weren't able to watch a lot of TV growing up as kids, so my mom would watch uh, her cooking shows on, on Saturday morning. Uh, there was a, a show called Galloping Gourmet that was on, and and then you know I was always like, ah, oh, this is you know fun to watch, but you know wasn't too you know engaged with it until really Jacques Pepin uh, came on. You know. Enchanté. Bonjour, this is Fabulously Delicious, the podcast that's all about delicious French food and the people that love it, cook it, produce it, talk, write and photograph it. French chefs have a special place in the hearts, minds and stomachs of foodies around the world. Some might say it's all about the chef's technique or talent and some passion to get to the peak of a chef's career. You can also find chefs that are all about local produce. They work closely with the producers on their doorstep and some chefs are all about the mentoring of the next generation of cooks that come up through the ranks. Today on Fabulously Delicious, we are being joined by a chef that could be said embraces all of the qualities that I just mentioned. To talk about his career as a chef, passion for food, and one of the world's most prestigious chef awards is Philippe Tessier. Philippe, thank you for joining me on Fabulously Delicious today. Yeah, pleasure to be here. Thanks for having me. Uh, Philippe, I want to go right back to the beginning, if you don't mind. You grew up in Williamsburg, Virginia, is that right? Uh, that's correct. Yeah, history town, USA. For those of us not from the States, is it an idealistic place to grow up, uh, Williamsburg? Is it on the internet? It looks like all old houses and lots of greenery. Yeah, I would say uh, growing up there, you know, you never really know where you're you know, what you have in front of you when you're, when you're growing up, you know, a lot of people just are like, yeah, that's where I grew up, you know, but for me, it was, uh, you know, it was, a, it was a great place to grow up for, you know, the history that is there. So you have kind of a historic area, which, uh, you know, compared to Europe is quite new, <laughs> but here in the US, you know, our, our first, uh, kind of, you know, foray into, into settling America with Jamestown, Yorktown, Williamsburg. So what they call the historic triangle here. So, um, you know, the, the pipe and drum corps that traditionally played with, you know, you could hear from my house and things like that. So lots of fun things to do, lots of fun things to explore. Um, and uh, interestingly, in hindsight, you know, some fun, you know, kind of historic uh, cooking, you know, methods and ideas that kind of filtered their way into, uh, you know, my formative years early on. Yeah. Okay. Cause I was going to ask, is it a very foodie place? I would say definitely not, you know, in terms of, uh, you, uh, the foodie world today, but, uh, you know, it has its, its own cuisine. I think the, the Southern style of cooking is, is pretty, uh, strong there. Um, and so there, there's a lot of, a lot of history and things, I guess the way I would put it is there's, if you look for it, it's there, uh, but just living there and, and, you know, going to restaurants and things like this or whatever as a kid like I was never really exposed to that so but there's a, a lot of you know that kind of uh two things one would be really the kind of southern style of cooking that you know is representative of that region um and then also um you know the kind of historical type of cooking that is on display so you have you know the the original taverns that have been restored that are serving the type of fare you might have experienced back in the in the 1700s so that that to me was really fascinating when i kind of finally came upon that you know when i got older what did your parents do for a living were they chefs so i once heard someone describe themselves as a as a culinary orphan okay yeah <laughs> So yeah, my dad, he worked uh, for the postal service here for a number of years. Um, and then my mom, you know, originally, uh, kind of was just, was a mom at home, then became a teacher and then, you know, worked in retail. So, you know, she was, uh, sort of the driving force of the family, so to say, in terms of, uh, you know, kind of 
bringing us up, but, um, yeah, really kind of no association to food, you know, through, through my parents. What led you to decide to become a chef? I track it it back to, uh, Saturday mornings, you know, we weren't able to watch a lot of TV growing up as kids. So my mom would watch, uh, her cooking shows on, on Saturday morning. Uh, there was a, a show called Galloping Gourmet that was on and, and then, you know, I was always like, oh, this is, you know, fun to watch, but, you know, wasn't too, you know, engaged with it until really Jacques Pepin uh, came on, you know, French chef here in the, in the U.S. And um, I was just fascinated with, you know, his, his, the technique, the little things he'd carve out of vegetables sometimes and, and things like this. And so that kind of really sort of, you know, lit a light bulb or two. Um, and then I remember, you know, my mom just recently described me coming back from a field trip to sort of a Japanese like teppanyaki restaurant. We went on a field trip for school and uh, like I just wouldn't stop talking about it. I was like so enraptured with the fact that you could, like, cook and, you know, have some kind of show and like that, you know, just that rhythm and pace and cadence that, you know, came came with it. So, um, yeah, I, I guess those were kind of little little trigger points that got me into it and then also she would, you know, kind of once a year, we'd go to the library, you know, pick a cookbook or two that we wanted to cook out of. And she would do a, a meal with, you know, each of the kids, five kids in the home. So, you know, my brother was making pizza bagels and things like this. And I was like, I want to do the the Russian pierogies and the strawberry trifle and, you know, things like this. So sort of had an unnatural interest, if you will, you know, at a, at a fairly young age. And so then you started your career as a chef at a very young age as well. Is that normal in the States? I would say, I would say no. <laughs> you know, I, I kind of decided, you know, I, I think I was probably you know, six or 16 at the time. And, you know, you're kind of at that point, you know, halfway through high school here where you're kind of like, what am I going to go to school for? Or, you know, what am I going to study? Or like, what, what career path am I going to choose? And so... You know, I knew I had an interest in cooking. I had started cooking at home. My mom was working late, so I just started cooking dinner for the family. Um, and uh, basically, you know, kind of just decided, well, let me get a job, you know, in a restaurant. And fortunately, was able to, you know, procure a job initially in the dining room, actually, uh, at the the inn here called the Williamsburg Inn, which is kind of, uh, you know, sits right on the, the first tee of the golf course. And it's kind of got the grandeur of the, of, you know, the, it's a historic hotel. Um, so it was a place where, you know, people had gone to culinary school. People had, uh, I think the chef had cooked for the Royal family at one point, you know, German chef. And so, you know, there was, it wasn't your, your local eatery. It was really something that was, you know, trying to kind of do something a little more unique and special, you know, in context. So yeah, I kind of got just totally enraptured in that whole world and fascinated with all the moving parts and pieces of, of what made, a, especially a hotel of that size at the time, um, you know, click and what made it all work. Uh, so that was kind of my first foray. But yeah, definitely, definitely, you know, young in terms of uh, getting in. You actually went to the CIA which is not a detective agency for the government. It's the Culinary Institute of America. Is, a, is that a pathway for people? Yeah, I think, you know, it's changed a lot, you know, today. But when I was, you know, younger, it was it was interesting. I think the the van, you know, from the school had, like, you know, hottest growing career in, in the country. And it was right when, like, you know, Iron Chef Japan was kind of a big thing and all these new cooking shows were coming on, like, first seasons of Top Chef and things like this. So... Um, you know, it was really something that 
people were excited about and, and flocking to, you know, our, our craft and industry. And so, you know, I didn't really go there to be the next celebrity chef. I hadn't even seen those shows or heard of them at the time, but um, yeah, I think, you know, it was kind of the traditional path to take, you know, going through culinary school and then stepping into you know, your, your next thing. But I went there as a 17 year old, you know, and I was, I was quite young compared to a lot of the other kids who, you know, either there's a lot of career changers, a lot of people coming from, you know, having another degree and then going there. So it was kind of a quite, quite the mix of, of age groups. So the Culinary Institute of America, is that a big deal in the US? Like, is there other cooking schools as well? Do you have Le Cordon Bleu? You know, unfortunately, Le Cordon Bleu, you know, kind of closed down here uh, back in, I think, 2016. Um, so that was that was a great school. And the nice thing about them was just the number of campuses they had across the country. But really, the the CIA, the Culinary Institute of America is, I would say, the preeminent school in the country. Uh, you know, they have three campuses now, you know, in New York, San Antonio, and then actually one, you know, just up the street from us here in Napa. Um, so, you know, they really kind of established themselves as sort of the, the leader, you know, in the culinary um, education. And so, yeah, I was really fortunate to kind of, you know, find my way there. Um, I think that's kind of a theme throughout my path is just, uh, you know, sort of being blessed with opportunity and finding my way, you know, despite my ignorance, <laughs> you know, to, you know, to a, a great place to work, you know, in Williamsburg, Virginia, of all places, and then, you know, finding my place to to a great culinary school. And, you know, looking back, there's a lot of ways I could have gone. Uh, you love the experience so much, it seems, uh, studying that you actually stayed on and worked there for a little while after your studies. Is that right? Yeah, it kind of came originally uh, from from a, a need to survive. You know, get a, getting a job at the at the local. You know, local. I mean, it was a student run restaurant, but you know, they had student workers who would come in and and support the restaurant and the staff. So, you know, I kind of found the way again in the dining room uh, initially, just working kind of uh, what I thought would be just a couple hours a week, and you know, turned out to be five days a week for pretty much the next two years, um, and kind of really doubled my education in a lot of ways. You know, I kind of, uh, you know, both between working and then I built a lot of relationships with the instructors, you know, as the French, you know, it's called a Scoffier room, um, you know, French restaurant on campus. There were at the time four different restaurants, you know, different cuisines. So, um, you know, I built a relationship with the chef there and then kind of basically decided this would be the best thing for me to do as a transition out of school was to sort of be what I guess you'd call a student teacher or manager in training as they call it now. Um, but basically you're the sous chef running the restaurant. Um, and I think the really fascinating thing about how they set up the program there, and I, I don't know if they still do this, but um, you know, you had a new class every seven days. So, you know, you're running a restaurant and then every, every seven days you're training a new staff, both in the dining room and in the kitchen. So it was, it was pretty wild. A lot of, you know, really reinforcing for me, you know, training and teaching and, and working with pretty much anyone. <laughs> so, you know, you got all different skill sets and, and attitudes and mindsets. So I think that really kind of uh, sort of started that formation of, of learning how to, you know, really build teams and train people and kind of, you know, be a leader, you know, at a, at a young age. After that period, you came to France. Is that the first time you'd been to France? It was. It was. It was quite the leap for me. <laughs> I can imagine. I was nineteen. I, I didn't really know the language. I had studied, you know, maybe a year in college. Like you know, everybody here studies a language and then forgets it. <laughs> so, you know, it's it's the disadvantage we have here in this country is just uh, you know other outside of Spanish now. You know, really the 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 commingling of of languages and things across, especially when I was in Europe, just fascinated with, you know, how many languages everybody knows out of, you know, just birth or necessity, you know, 
And, you know, so really going there just was kind of like a huge step, both in terms of culture, language, and then obviously, you know, from a cooking perspective. So, but I was, I was, you know, equally anxious and excited um, for the opportunity. And, uh, you know, it was, it was great. I loved it. And did you have work lined up already when before you came or did you arrive and have to look for a job? Yeah, so fortunately, one of the chefs I worked for in, in the Escoffier room, you know, he was, you know, a French French chef, had a lot of relationships, you know, across France. And so he, he worked to help set up uh, two different stages for me. So I spent, uh, you know, the first three months was set up in, in Chambéry, um, just uh, the Lyon, the foothills there of the Alps. And then, you know, it's, I worked there for three months and then I went to the south of France to Mougins, right outside of Cannes, and worked for uh, Roger Verger at the time. That's just not any old restaurant. That's a three Michelin starred restaurant. Yeah, it was. Um, you know, it was pretty. It was pretty amazing. I mean, I, I came there towards you know the the end of the glory days of 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 uh, but um, you know the the history. I went. I really went to France to learn the culture, the language, and the cuisine. You know, it, I, I think in my mind, I I could go to some really great restaurants in New York and continue my craft and learn how that how to to be a better cook, but. That was really my goal there. And so going to the Moulin de Mojan, like Roger Verger's restaurant, was really about, you know, seeing that sort of, you know, historical, you know, haute cuisine that, you know, we had read about in books and other things. And so, um, yeah, it was just amazing just to kind of be there and, and see, you know, how all that, you know, worked and came together. And, uh, you know, I had some pretty amazing experiences doing some different events and things with them. So, yeah, plus, you know, not too shabby place to live. <laughs> no, no, the Cote d'Azur. Um, what's your favourite dish, do you remember, from that time at uh, the Moulin? Um, I think uh, I think probably, you know, there was the artichoke dish. I have uh, mixed memories of, you know, one was the uh, six cases I had to turn by myself for four and a half hours every morning. <laughs> so from that perspective, it wasn't my favourite dish, but, uh, you know, in terms of, the um you know just just the memories there's there's actually two things really just that dish was just like they would they would get these like bushels of of niçoise olives and just put them through this machine that like just milled them and you'd get this amazing like fresh tapenade that that came out the other side and then all the pits would come out all super clean and uh you know we did we went to the chef's house for you know some of i think just a, a, a staff of you know get gathering and uh he he had gathered all these pits for like fifteen years and had used them as like mulch across his landscaping. <laughs> so I was like, that is a lot of olives. But um, you know that dish was you know this classic artichoke berigoule with like the garlic and the basil, just all the things you would think of coming from Provence. And you know the other the other thing would be just really ratatouille. Uh, it was one of the things I had to make when I was you know kind of the comi assistant the meat station and and to this day if i smell like olive oil and roasting eggplant and squash like i'm immediately transported back to this candy burner with these steel pans you know making this ratatouille as a as a 19 year old so you know that i that still resonates very did you get to explore the Cote d'Azur whilst you were working there uh, a little bit so you know interestingly i was pretty broke um not a lot of money working in as a student teacher for a year <laughs> but uh i went to france with three thousand dollars i i spent fifteen hundred dollars in six months um you know i basically i basically i have i have no money i need to work 
days. So I worked pretty much six days the whole time I was there. But, you know, on my days off, you know, when I was in, in Chambéry, we'd go up to the foothills with some of the, some of the guys and, you know, hike around and, uh, you know, went to, um, you know, in, in, in the South of France, little, little exploration of Nice here and there and, uh, you know, kind of on the coast. And then at the end of my trip, I spent two weeks traveling, you know, across, uh, across France. So that was where the other $1,500 went. And so then I came back to the U S pretty much broke. So I called dad and was like, uh, I think I need to move to New York city. <laughs> it was amazing just to see, see France experience the cuisine. And, you know, I didn't really know at the time how much that would impact, you know, my career. Uh, but it's one of those things that, you know, I'm just so thankful that I, I had that experience, you know, at that age. You're listening to Fabulously Delicious, the podcast that's all about French food and the wonderful and fabulous people that make it. If you're a business that has a connection to French food or France and you'd like to support Fabulously Delicious and reach a whole new audience, then please do get in touch. The more support we can get to bring fabulous French foodies to the world and highlight classic dishes, new and improved ones, or just little known regional specialties, the better. My name's Andrew Pryor, and my motto in life is, whatever you do, you should do it fabulously. Thanks for listening, and let's get back to the chef profile of Philip Tessa, where we talk about working for two of the best chefs in the world, Eric Repair and Thomas Keller. After France, you you go back to the States. Um, you ended up working for, well, actually, I was just thinking about that when... Um, when you were talking, I read Eric Repair's biography and he talks about how he just had no time to do anything. Uh, he was just working consistently um, when he was at the restaurants and would get up and go to work and then come home and go to sleep and get up and go to work. But you actually worked with him back in the States after you come back from France. Is that right? Yeah, it was actually my first job back in the US was going to Le Bernardin. Um, I was back in uh, 2000. Um, and so, yeah, I kind of came there as a young, young you know, I guess at the time I, I turned 21 in Paris. That was pretty cool. But uh, came came back to the U.S. and just was like, all right, need to find a job. I, you know, met my uh, what would become my future wife uh, just before I had left for, for France. So she was still at school at the CIA. So I wanted to be somewhere close to, to her. And so, yeah, I got a job there. And, um, yeah, you know, we wrote letters every day. Still, still have them. <laughs> so uh, I was fortunate to... Uh, kind of keep in touch uh it was funny though we actually i came back and we actually broke up for like a month and a half and then got back together again just just kind of you know it was kind of all those things you grow close through all these letters but you really don't really know each other that well and then you kind of realize let's let's give this another shot here so yeah i made the right choice she's a winner at such a young age you work with so many amazing wonderful chefs do you think that young people still have that opportunity today um yeah i do i just think you know it's it's really hard to navigate. I think today's world, I think, you know, I know the, the interesting thing is chefs are constantly looking for young, young talent. And, and by talent, I don't mean like they're highly trained, they're just trainable <laughs> and, 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 and want to work. And so it's always fascinating to me in this country, especially where there's such a disconnect between, you know, these young kids trying to find their way in the world and, and all the chefs who are looking for them. Um, so, you know, it's, it's one of the things I'm very passionate about and, and trying to really bridge that gap, um, you know, between, you know, a kid going to culinary school like myself, I, you know, I never heard of a, a Thomas Keller or, or anyone. I, I didn't know any of the great restaurants, you know, except for what you started to hear and listen to, you know, being at school. So, you know, it's, it's 
it's one of those things I think I was really fortunate to have chefs sort of steer me in the right direction and find those, you know, mentors that could really kind of help guide my decision making. And then, you know, I was, you know, kind of at that point I had learned, you know, by the time I came back from France, really just that I, I just wanted to work for the best. That was really my goal. So, um, you know, I was kind of just like, okay, who was out there that, that I should work for. And, and that's when I found myself at the Bernadette. But yeah, in today's age, you know, I think the opportunity is there. I think, I think, you know, social media and all this is a blessing and a curse. Um, but it does give people access to at least, at least see on a daily basis, you know, what, what chefs are doing out there across the country. There's this uh, term in uh, in the chef world of a stage, so it's uh, spelled the same way as stage. Can you explain what a stage is, and do you think that it's important for a chef to do? Yeah, there's some some very dividing opinions on stages. You know, um, you know, I staged in France. You know, I, I went, I worked for free for six months. Um, you know, and it was it was the best time of my life. <laughs> I didn't have any bills to pay, didn't have anything to worry about. I just woke up, worked, you know, absorbed the culture and the language while I was there, and, and loved every minute of it. But um, you know, I think that's that's the challenge today. A lot of a lot of chefs have abused, you know, the stage, you know, position where probably some of the chefs I worked for, I think there was seven of us at one time. I think he only paid like three of the employees. <laughs> so, you know, there's there's that side of it where, you know, unfortunately because of that, it's it's sort of, you know, been frowned upon now. So it's it's actually quite difficult for us to to host stages here, um, you know, because of the labor laws and I think, I think even in Europe, you know, if you're outside the EU, it's quite difficult. So, you know, we, we try to get that stage program back through, you know, just, I wouldn't say sponsoring, but just, you know, just paying people to come and be here. Um, I loved the, the, the thought process behind it because, you know, I, I was able to get access to working in places that, you know, I probably wouldn't have been able to otherwise, um, and then equally so here, you know, when I would have started work at, at the restaurants, you know, I was a chef in or working in, you know, you, you had that culture come to you, um, you know, so whether it was somebody from, from, you know, from Mexico or from UK or Australia or Germany, France, you know, you just by interacting with them, being with them, you know, maybe we're making a dish from staff meal or French laundry menu changes every day, just seeing some of these other influences, you know, I loved it. So I, I definitely miss that, you know, traditional aspect of a stage. I think now they're, they're generally, you know, much more brief and short to kind of comply with, you know, some of the limitations that we have. You still, at a very young age, was working for an American icon, Thomas Keller. When was that? Yeah, so I spent I spent about three years at, at Le Bernardin and kind of finally worked my way up to sous chef towards the end of my time. I was, I was still only 23 at that time. So um, yeah, I I was looking to work somewhere else in, in New York before. I mean, I knew New York City was a not a permanent place. I was gonna, you know, post up and raise my raise a family at some point. So um, I, I decided to, you know, kind of branch out and look at where else I should go and talk to Eric Repair. And he recommended I work for this guy named Thomas Keller, who was opening a, a restaurant in in New York. So um, you know, I knew of him, but hadn't you know found out too much, and so kind of dug into that and realized kind of this would be a pretty amazing opportunity. Um, again, just realizing like how, you know, I think back then it was even, it was, you know, today with our information age, it's just like, of course, you know, you should know who everybody is. But back then it was even then, you know, you, you really kind of in your circles found out about things. So working, you know, going there, I, I got the interview with Jonathan Benno and, you know, met him for the first time. And uh, 
I was like going there to per se to open that in January of 2004. And I, you know, I was, I was a sous chef at Le Bernardin. I'd worked in France. Like I, I kind of really knew my stuff, you know, and then I went there and realized I was, I pretty much knew nothing. <laughs> um, you know, the, the team that was assembled, you know, to open per se was, was nothing short of, you know, extraordinary, you know, and I was just really uh, humbled very quickly to, you know, in a really positive way, just to, and like absorb just so much so fast from, from that team there. And uh, yeah, that was really, you know, a pivotal point in my career where it kind of went from, you know, this is what I do. I'm learning, working for the best to kind of, you know, really kind of ramped up serious professional engagement. And and then you drink the punch and you're just all in. (laughs) So that was uh I was kind of, you know, 2004, you know, as a 23-year-old, just just jumping in with both hands and both feet to, uh, you know, a pretty extraordinary experience. You ended up being the sous chef, the executive sous chef at the French Laundry. Can you explain what is the role of an executive sous chef? Sure. Yeah. I mean, so I, you know, that was about an eight-year gap between that first day at Per Se and making my way to French Laundry, uh, just going you know, finding my way up as a sous chef at Per Se and then, you know, moving out to California to be the chef de cuisine at the at the bistro here called Bouchon. And then, uh, yeah, I, you know, moving into the French Laundry was, um, you know, I would say the executive sous chef's a position you mostly hear of in like hotels and, and things like this. Um, but, you know, I think that position exists, especially, you know, at, at Per Se and French Laundry because of the way that restaurant is run. You know, there's you know, at the time there was 10 shifts a week. So you had three lunches, seven dinners. So essentially five days a week, two teams, you know, so I, I would oversee the team that did three lunches and two dinners. So it's really a restaurant run by, you know, to a degree, two chefs, you know, um, you know, a lot of things have changed now, you know, for, for how things are, but that was for, for many years, for decades, that was how that restaurant was run where you had the, you know, the executive chef who chef the cuisine, who was, you know, running that, the whole restaurant running his team five days a week. And then, you know, partnering with him was an executive sous chef who ran that other team. And, you know, the menu changes there every day. So you're consistently, you know, kind of trying to reinvent what we're doing. And so a lot of that input and, you know, the fingerprint of those chefs is, is evident and visible throughout it. So yeah, basically, you know, you're just um, starting over every day there, you know, in, in a pretty fascinating way. You know, I try to explain to the young cooks to me, that work for me now, you know, that the, 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 the intensity of the structure and organization and the discipline that run, that is the baseline of that restaurant allows that to, to, to take place, you know, where you can, what, what I call introducing chaos to, to, to the restaurant intentionally on a daily basis actually works because of, of, you know, how disciplined and how structured that, that restaurant is. So, you know, lots of takeaways from just, you know, that, that whole experience working for the Thomas Keller group. But um, yeah, it was uh, a lot of work, a lot of hours, a lot of, uh, a lot of craziness. <laughs> what is Thomas Keller like? For us, he's this icon, you know, of, of American food. Yeah. I mean, I think, you know, I, I saw him, you know, in a lot of different layers, you know, going from, you know, similar to your description, you know, him walking in the room, you know, in our first meeting with the team in 2004 and just like, there he is, he's here, he's in the room, <laughs> you know, to like him yelling at me because I'm, I'm washing the blender out in the wrong sink in the restaurant and, and, you know, he's there washing dishes, you know, himself, 
to, to do whatever it takes. And, uh, you know, traveling through my journey of, you know, him coming alongside as more of a mentor and taking on that, that chef to cuisine role. Um, and so, you know, that was really, uh, you know, kind of the different layers of that. And then, and then moving into Boku's door, um, with, you know, seeing the really close relationship developed, you know, through that and the experience I had there. So, um, yeah, I think, you know, my, my basic, you know, kind of definition of Thomas is, is just that you, you know, he is, um, someone that if you're working for him, you, you, you better know what you're talking about if you know, if you're enough, <laughs> but he's also someone who's, you know, one wants to be in the mix, wants to be in with the team, you know, still, still loves the, the camaraderie of, of, of the group. So, you know, very, very approachable, you know, in a sense of, you know, if you're a cook in the kitchen and he's there, you, you don't feel, you know, necessarily, I mean, you feel intimidated, but you know, you don't feel like you can't approach him with something and things like this. So, um, you know, and then, you know, it's been interesting to see him evolve from, you know, at the time we were like still going for, you know, best restaurant in America and things like this to kind of more, you know, it's an older generation now that he represents and, you know, kind of finding more of that, that side of legacy and mentoring and, and, you know, kind of continuing to have an impact, you know, in, in our, in our craft across the country. So, um, lots, lots of facets to that, both in terms of my experience over, you know, a 20 year period and, um, you know, kind of all of the different unique sort of relationships we've had over the years. Who was our little visitor then? Uh, that was, uh, that was nutmeg, our little, our little dog. nutmeg. Right. Okay. Right. Yeah. yeah. Sometimes, uh, we have two golden retrievers and sometimes they hear me up here talking and they come up to see who I'm talking to. Yeah. Um, so we might get a visit from them later on. Do you have a favorite dish from that time at, at the French laundry? You know, I think one of the dishes that is, you know, most iconic that most people would know is, is the oysters and pearls. Um, you know, it's kind of a dish I think. I think at a younger age, like caviar wasn't really kind of my jam, so to say. But, you know, I think the first time I tried it, it was kind of like, all right, like, how could it, how good could it be? You know, and um, it, it's one of those dishes that, you know, it's it's a super small dish of, of basically a, a tapioca cooked in, you know, a, a sabayon of oyster, you know, juice and kind of set into a bowl. Um and then we reheat that during service, put kind of a, a vermouth-based sauce, you know, butter sauce over it, a couple pieces of oysters and caviar. And so it's very simple, you know, very clean. Um, it's called oysters and pearls from like, you know, oysters and that whole, you know, play on words with tapioca pearls. So, um, but it's one of those dishes that's so kind of like rich and satisfying and texturally just kind of like, yeah. <laughs> you know, and, uh, you know, you look to find a flaw in it and it, it really just doesn't exist. And, you know, it's why it's it's still being served there to pretty much every guest every day, you know, for so many years. How many of the staff actually get to eat all the food that comes out of that restaurant? So do you as a as a new chef coming in to the French Laundry or or to any of these places, do you get to try the whole menu? Not not really. I mean, you know, you're, you're, you're tasting the components, you know, as you go along. So, you know, making the sauce, tasting the sauce, you um you know obviously are tasting the vegetables the different things uh you know but really you never get a chance to kind of be like you know unless you're part of that you know menu development team uh who's 
you know, at least at least in the style of restaurant I work in now, where like you know we're we're working on a dish for a period of days, weeks, you know, before it goes on the menu. So you're you're tasting those things, and I, I do try to get the cooks involved in that process. But a lot of it's just from you know knowing knowing your your technique and 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 working through that. But um, yeah, everyone's like, "Wow, well, how do you stay so thin?" You know, and it's like, "Well, we're we're working all the time." <laughs> you're not eating anything. You're working very hard and not eating any of the food. Yeah. Put in my ten thousand steps every day pretty easily, um, but you know you're we we have fun with our our staff meals that we make, and I think that's where you know try to get some of the culture of our team involved and things like that. So you know while it, it might not be that you know two hundred and fifty dollar tasting menu that you're you're snacking on, you know it's uh, you're still, we're still eating pretty well and taking care of our team with you know our our kind of you know cuisine that we make for the team. And are you the chef uh, at home? We have a shared responsibilities. <laughs> okay. My wife actually does pastry, so she she's the she's the baker in the family. Um, but she she cooks a lot during the week. You know, she works in the morning. I work in the evening. So a lot of times she's on the hook for that. You know, so I, I'm I'm breakfast during the week, and you know I'll I'll throw down on the weekends. You know, we kind of trade off a little bit. So. But, um, you know, I love, I love to cook it when I can. Um, sometimes it's like, you know what, I'm going to take a break. <laughs> but, uh, yeah, we kind of have shared responsibilities, and I'm fortunate. She's a pretty good cook. My husband's not allowed in the kitchen. And after I was on MasterChef, actually, there was this uh, change. My husband turned into the judge on the show. So after every meal, I get judged every night now. Um, so does your wife do that to you? Does she, does she judge your cooking at home? No, she doesn't. She she. She hopes that I don't judge hers. <laughs> yeah, she's like really nervous. Much less so now. Now she's like just eat it, you know. But uh, when we first got married, she was so nervous. I walked by the kitchen one time, and she was like flipping an egg, and she she flipped it right into the windowsill because <laughs> she like she got nervous and was like. <laughs> Thanks for joining me on this, our first episode of a two-part episode with Philippe Tessa. Philippe, it was so fantastic to hear all about your food journey and the story of you becoming a chef. Such a special career. In part two next week, we'll dive into all things Bacoustor, one of the world's most acclaimed food awards, and how Philippe went from an observer to a contestant to eventually coaching teams for the Bacoustor and how all this has led to a connection with another one of the world's best chefs, the late Paul Bacuse. Don't forget, if you like this episode of Fabulously Delicious, then please subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts, Apple, Spotify, or wherever it is that you listen to podcasts. Share me around with your friends and family. I love to be shared around. I love the podcast to be shared around. If you'd like to support the Making a Fabulously Delicious, then you can do so by buying me a croissant via the Buy Me A Coffee website. Or you can become a Patreon member and get exclusive content on a monthly basis. Any help is appreciated so that I can bring more fabulous people to Fabulously Delicious. Oh, and if you're coming or planning on coming to France in the not-too-distant future or next year, or whenever it may be, you can book in a Zoom call with me so that I can help you plan a fabulous trip. You can do that via the Buy Me A Coffee link in the show notes for this podcast. In 2022, you will hopefully be able to come and join me here in person in Montmorillon for some fabulous cooking classes. I'm Andrew Pryor. My motto in life is, whatever you do, do it fabulously. So why not join me here every week on Fabulously Delicious, the podcast. Aviento and bon app. Hi, I'm Emma. And I'm Joe. And, and we're, we're the, the Professional, professional Book, book nerds. nerds. 
two Mondays a month, we interview authors and talk about their upcoming books, what drives them, and their go-to order at the cafe. On Thursdays, we share recommendations and dive into topics readers face, like how do I actually read the books on my to-be-read list? You can find the Professional Book Nerds podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Want to learn more about us? Our website is professionalbooknerds.com, and you can find us on Instagram, Twitter, and TikTok at ProBookNerds. We hope you'll come and listen, and as always, happy happy reading. reading!